0: The right hook.
1: With the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater with premium leather on all seven seats. MitsubishiMotors.ie
0: The show is The Right Hook. The station is News Talk, and this is George Hook, here with you until seven o'clock with the usual mix of news, comment, and opinion. Bill Hughes will drop in just after six o'clock to pick the essential songs of 1956. On the programme, Minister Coveney has a blueprint for the housing crisis, but will it work? What can we tell about people by their body language? and the population of the Ireland reaches a 150-year high. The Happiness Index, well, it took a jump as people stopped the boring conversation about Brexit and we all felt more cheerful. You can text the right hook at 53106, cost three cents. The email is the right hook at newstalk.com. And, of course, you can find me on Twitter at G-Hook. Well, if you thought Theresa May... It was a good appointment as Prime Minister. Then she really proved it within two hours of taking office. Uh, In comes Boris Johnson uh, as Foreign Secretary. Now, the crucial thing is, although she has a minister for the exit from breakfast strategy... The foreign secretary is the single most important guy in this whole exercise. He will deal with the Germans. And already the Germans are less than impressed about the idea of having to deal with Boris Johnson. So what this is going to create, and May is doing it brilliantly by bringing the Brexiteers in, she's following the age-old adage of keeping our friends close – And our enemies even closer. And the key situation here, of course, which many people will be asking, is he up to it? Well, the problem for the Brexiteers is they've got to make sure the Boris is up to it because otherwise their whole plan goes down the toilet. Not that they won't exit, and they are going to exit, but rather that she will create a situation that he must perform. This is classic. This is this is Thatcherite to use a great phrase. I have to tell you, I was astonished by Nottingham police. They have now decided to treat wolf whistles as a hate crime so at this moment all the guys uh, on building sites throughout Nottinghamshire are terrified uh, of, of uh, going to jail now are there hate crimes absolutely is it wrong to have unwanted physical attention on a woman by a man is it wrong to send unwanted texts of course and but the interesting thing Sarah Teal the BBC presenter was filming outside a conference and two guys are walking by and they do the usual, you know they make noises and faces and all the rest of it. Now, these two guys might well find themselves in jail. For those of you who watch the Euros, every time there was somebody doing a non-street report, there was some idiot sticking his head in the way. Is... Is that a hate crime? And what we are going to see now is, uh, as it happened? This has happened. A woman walks by a building site. The boys are whistling. She takes a film of it and she sends it to the cops. Now, is there any woman out there who would consider a few whistles from barely clad uh, building employees a hate crime? Now, the only problem for the fellas up on the roof, I have to say, is not only uh, are they facing jail for whistling, uh, if they're in South Carolina, they'll face jail for having their trousers down around their hips. So, like, we are losing absolutely the run of ourselves now in relation to what what can happen. They've... Old fashioned humor is just going out the door. And no doubt half of you, and you can send your text as much as you like to 53106 or so and say, No, no, this is awful. This is awful. I simply don't believe it's awful. And, but also, what it happens to be, I would think if had somebody whistled at Ingrid, she'd be absolutely thrilled skinny. Uh, uh, because nobody, I have to tell you, nobody's whistled at her in quite a while. <laughs> so she's probably delighted if the odd, uh, if the odd building site employee uh, give her a loud whistle. And the real thing is, what harm does this do? really and and the thing is also it seems to be gender biased because the whole language of the hate crime uh, from nottingham police seems to be in relation to men versus women does that mean that that what happens if a woman whistles at a man and after all as lauren bacall famously uh, said to humphrey bogart just purse your lips and blow so i mean what's wrong with whistling Yesterday we couldn't kiss our kids. Poor old Victoria Beckham, Beckham coming in for abuse. Today it says, we're really losing the run of ourselves. Mind you, mind you. Now, if you're talking politics, Shane Coleman is the business. If you're talking economics, in fact, Shane Coleman isn't bad. If you're, if you, if you're talking about Shane Coleman coaching kids in Gaelic football, you're okay. But Shane Coleman on golf. Just doesn't cut it anymore. It, you heard Keen. The Open is on the way, and Shane argued on breakfast it should be referred to as the British Open. No, it should not. It's the Open Championship. Have a listen to Shane talking to us, Shane Langan, this morning.
2: It's not the, I mean, we the Open, we had the Open here. Uh, Rory McElroy won it. Yes, it's the British Open. You see, because it was the first and it's the biggest, the RNA have always referred to it as the Open Championship. They've never called it the British Open. Yeah, but let them. They're entitled to call it the Open. We don't have to. But but it's their tournament and it was the first, to be fair. And if you say the Open Championship, everyone knows what you mean. Yeah, but I still think in this, I think it's the British Open.
0: See, Shane's wrong. He's so wrong. Oh, Shane had a minor glitch there saying it's the biggest. The biggest has nothing to do. It was the first one. So there was no need to say the British Open. It was the Open Championship. It was the only one. And then when other ones came along, like I oh, like the American one, it was the American Open. Our one was the Irish Open. But it was always the Open Championship. That's why uh, for you philatelists out there, uh, stamps from the United Kingdom don't have the United Kingdom on it, because they were the first people to put stamps on letters, the great Penny Black. Remember the Penny Black? Well, you don't, but if you've had one, you wouldn't be worth a few quid. So, the, the point was, they didn't have to put it on their stamp. We had to put era on our stamp. The Swiss had to put Helvetia, and the Finns had to put Suomi, because stamps, as they then came in, they had to designate the country. The British didn't need to. They were the first one. Just the same as they actually don't say um, the, the, the British Queen. It's the Queen. We all know who the Queen is. You know, a few other queens, but she's the main one. And uh, anyway, today is uh, air code day. It's a year old. The greatest single failure uh, in Ireland's history. Uh, I remember when uh, the leader of the Green Party, Owen Ryan, he came, Eamon Ryan, he came in with this brilliant idea of postal codes, and this would this would change the world because letters would reach us much faster and parcels and everything. They then came up with a system that nobody understands. Nobody. It has no relevance because it's random. So you could have George Hook at XYZ 404 and the fella next door at ABC 999. And they're next door to each other. So they're random, unlike Britain, for argument's sake, where you all know it's SW3 or uh, NW3 in London. You have a rough idea now where it is. In America, you can tell if it's 77005, you know that's Houston, Texas. This cost 38 million euro. And the only people to benefit for this, and the reason it was brought in as a random system, was to benefit on post. And the employees said on post. Because this meant this system... Other competitors couldn't bring it in. Whereas if you had a system that everybody could use on their computers and so on, everybody would have it. Whereas, in fact, don't post. I tell you what, I'll give you a right hook T-shirt to the fellow who re- t- sends me a text to 53106 if he knows his air code. Does anybody know their air code or where they live? And it's cheating if you look it up now. Come on, do you know it? Give me a break. I bet, I, I bet you don't. I, just, I have no idea what mine is. None. Now, it's Bastille Day, though. Now, this is the country that gave us Charles de Gaulle, who famously, in relation to Britain's entry to Europe, where they are now leaving, Charles de Gaulle said, no. And what about Braille, the great inventor of something that made, made it so easy for blind people to read books? And what about the woman of my youth, Bridget Bardo, oh my, and the Devil Created Woman. What a title for a movie with Bridget Bardot, directed by her then lover, Raja Vadim. Oh, Brigitte Bardot. She was just fabulous. I actually dated a girl who was the image of her one time. Yeah, amazingly. Uh, I think I dated her because she looked like Brigitte Bardot. And then what about Maurice Chevalier, who was the classic sort of French guy who sort of, you know, he had that accent. I said uh, This. Oh, little girls, they get bigger every day. Do you remember that in the movie, Gigi? Uh, Chevalier and of course Christian Dior where would all our women be without Christian Dior but what I'm going to give you now are the two things which for me make France it's the great female it's the little sparrow it's the wonderful Edith Piaf, just four foot eleven of her. And and the tragedy Piaf. She was in love with a boxer, Marcel Sardin. He was world middleweight champion. And coming back from America the plane crashed and he died, and poor old Edith was never the same. But here she is with that most extraordinary voice, which the French accent just sent shivers up my spine, and the most blood curdling anthem of them all la masse à l'aise.
1: À enfants,
0: Frenchman, tears streaming down my cheeks, full of emotion. I think of that extraordinary woman, that extraordinary anthem, that extraordinary country uh, that has given us the world so much and remains today. You cannot walk down the Champs without thinking this is really a special country. Happy birthday to all French people in Ireland. Simon Coveney, Minister uh, for Housing, uh, has his action plan was announced. Uh, it's going to be published uh, next week subject to cabinet approval. There was a a whole leak of course in the Irish Times but I'm joined now by Owen O'Brien TD, the Sinn Féin spokesperson on housing planning and local government. Deputy O'Brien, why don't you like it?
2: Well, The first thing is, to be fair to the Minister, the the draft that I've seen is several weeks old uh, and I'm hoping that it's going to change substantially uh, before its publication next
0: Tuesday. Well, can I just stop you on that? Isn't it unfortunate that it is leaked, that the Irish Times has a leaked document that is actually old, that almost certainly will be um, revised in some way, and then we're all getting worked up about it before seeing the, the real one? It depends. So, for example, if
2: as a result of the leak this puts additional pressure on the minister and the government uh, to improve the plan before publication uh, next week, then no, it will have been a very good thing. Uh, If we simply got the plan next week and it is the same as what I have read and I've read the full draft, then I think uh, we'd be deeply disappointed. So, no, I think it's a good thing we're having the debate. But the crucial issue is the plan needs to, to change substantially because the gap between what is in the current draft and what, for example, the Doll Housing and Homelessness Committee recommended some weeks ago, is very, very wide, and that would worry me considerably.
0: All right. So what has Minister Coveney proposed? Because as we understand it, he sought this office, and in his first few days in office, he pledged to do something about the housing crisis.
2: Well, when you look at the detail of what's proposed, uh, there are four kind of fundamental uh, concerns. The first is the target for the output of social housing, housing owned by local authorities and voluntary housing associations, is simply far too low. It's possibly less than 50% of what the Doll Housing and Homeless Committee recommended. We proposed 10,000 uh, council and housing association units a year, every year, uh, for five years. My reading of the Coveney draft plan is that it could be as few as four to 5,000 a year, which is less than half of what we proposed. There's also very, very little on the private rental sector. Nothing, for example, in dealing with spiraling rents and security of tenure. There's a vague promise to develop a strategy, but no indication of what's in it. Likewise, on mortgages, very weak. Uh, and some of the key commitments in the programme for government, for example, the new mortgage resolution court, I've mentioned, you know, the moratorium on repossessions that we call for. And on homelessness, and this is, I suppose, what really worries me, there's only two pages of text and three pages of actions in a 55-page plan. Uh, And of the actions, I think there's about seven actions on homelessness. They are all things that are currently happening, nothing new. Now, again, I stress the, the plan that Minister Coveney announced on Tuesday may be fundamentally different from this. And if it is, I will welcome it. But if it is anything close to the draft that I have read, I think a lot of people are going to be deeply disappointed.
0: All right. Well, let's take it. Let's analyze for the moment the sort of four major criticisms you have. And I'm not taking them in order. My memory isn't that good. But like the issue, for instance, of security of tenure and and spiraling rents, are, uh, the rents are simply an economic force that... If the value of the house, i.e., the asset, goes up, then the rent goes up. If you make it a position that the rent is below the market value of the house, then what you get, what you will get, is no rental sector. No. Yes, but there are ways of. of I did happy, you
2: said yes. <laughs> there, there are ways of having a happy medium between the need for a landlord to generate a a, a reasonable profit on their investment and tenants to have rent certainty and not to have to face spiraling rents. Keep in mind rent for an average family home in Dublin at the moment are about fifteen hundred euros yeah. a month. Yeah. So the Dole Housing and Homeless Committee cross party agreement with Finegale and Fianna Fáil support proposed, for example, rent certainty, linking rent reviews and increase and decreases to the consumer price index. That's not here. Okay, well, we let's also... say,
0: I, I, if you don't mind, I'd like to tease that out, you sure. know? because I presume you're not in the school of jail, the evil bastards, are you, in relation to landlords? I, I,
2: I live in the private rental sector. I want to live in the private rental sector, and so do many people. And what I would like to see uh, is a property functioning, professionally run, and stable private rental sector that gives security of tenure and security okay. of rent, both for landlords and tenants. That happens in other parts of the world. There's no real reason why it couldn't happen here. The concern, however, is all, we're being, uh, all that's being proposed in the current draft is a commitment to develop a strategy as opposed to any specific proposal okay.
0: of Orange. how to
2: tackle, for example, spiraling rent, which is putting many working families Uh, on this huge financial strain and some attracted to homelessness
0: as we speak. I have no doubt. I mean, I have no doubt. Uh, I'm I'm just trying to work out how we can do it, like how you can do it rather uh, than Coveney can do it. The second question I think you raised was the issue of of mortgages. Um, uh, Bank uh, lends 200000 to Homeowner A. Homeowner A can no longer pay the loan. Isn't there... Uh, a situation here. Well, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to pay a loan back, and the the security that you gave for the loan is a house, so now the security is actioned, no? I, I agree, but again, here's what's currently happening. Okay. Uh,
2: rather than offering the uh, homeowner and the family a, a write-down to make that mortgage sustainable, what banks are doing is repossessing the property, evicting the families, and selling on tranches of uh, distressed mortgages. Uh, to short-term investment or vulture funds at a substantial discount. If they simply offered that same discount to the distressed family, they could keep many families in reasonably priced family homes. And here's the point. The Programme for Government has specific commitments about a new mortgage resolution process. All we asked for in the Dole Housing and Homelessness Committee report was that they introduce those as quickly as possible. And until they introduce them uh, no more repossessions of homes to eminently reasonable propositions. And again, neither of those things are in the Covenant draft. Yeah, I, that I, I,
0: read. I worry about that, I must say, because I think, I don't know whether you know, but I don't know what sort of discount they offered on these properties to these vulture funds, right? I suspect it was substantial.
2: Sometimes 30, sometimes 40, sometimes yeah.
0: 50%. Right. Now, if they, there is no doubt in my mind that if I were a homeowner in a house, I suppose 250 in Dublin is a kind number, you could say, a 250,000 mortgage, and they suddenly say to me, well, listen, we give it to you for 125. Now, the trick would be you'd have to find 125, or you would have to be able to fund a loan of 125. But a huge number of people would jump at a deal of 30, 40 or 50%. I must say I am appalled that we would give it to some smart dads in America, Australia or Britain uh, to give that deal that we won't give it to our own.
2: And and this is again the point. All we ask for in the Dáil Housing and Homelessness Committee report is fast-track the government's own promises and the for government around uh, uh, a new mortgage resolution process and put a temporary stay on the repossessions until then. We also said very clearly there needs to be better use uh, of split mortgages and debt write-downs where such action is sustainable to keep people in modest family homes. Uh, and again, the difficulty is is what we see in the draft report. And again, I stress it's draft and it may change uh, by Tuesday. But what we see is the re-announcement of, for example, the announcement that the Minister of Justice Francis Fitzgerald made a couple of weeks ago around giving people in mortgage stress access to legal aid uh, uh, through MABS. That's a good thing. But that isn't enough to tackle the core no. problem
0: the the other thing that uh, apparently the Irish famine it happened before your time but it, but the Irish famine apparently need never have happened but the British had this idea you know that don't interfere with the market. Irish economics over the last number of 10 or 20 years has been a bit like that, that the market will fix the problem. Is there anything in this report that says the government or the councils or somebody is going to build houses to solve a crisis as opposed to waiting for the developer to do it?
2: Well, it's pretty interesting because there is a section, obviously, on state intervention and on uh, social housing, But in the the preamble text to the actions in that section, it's almost like uh, the report is apologising for the need of the state to intervene. Crucially, however, there is a proposal to increase uh, the uh, number of social housing units. The difficulty is, from my reading of the draft, it is simply too little. So again, go back to the Dahl Housing and Homeless Committee report we said increase the stock of properties owned by local authorities and not-for-profit housing associations by 10,000 units a year, every year, for five years, as a minimum position. Again, my reading, despite headline figures uh, in the report, is that what you were probably going to get, if this plan is what COVID announces on Tuesday, four to 5,000 units a year. So that's, again, potentially less than half of what we recommended. Uh, and that's simply not good enough. When we have 6,000 people sleeping in emergency accommodation Absolutely. tonight, 2,000 of them children and 130,000-plus families on housing waiting lists. And here's the crazy thing. The CSO released the the 2016 um, census figures today. So we now
1: have...
2: We have the the updated figure on vacant properties across the state, not including holiday homes. It's 198,000. So we urgently need money not just to build new homes, but to get a bunch of those properties into use and get people living right. in them rather than hotels and
0: B&Bs. All right, thank you for joining me. Deputy Ono Brain, the Sinn Féin spokesperson on housing, planning and local government. I'm joined now by Deirdre Cullen, Senior statistician with the Central Statistics Office because the first uh, figures of the census are out. Is that so, Deirdre?
3: That's right, George. Today we released the preliminary results just 12 weeks after Census Day
0: presumably computerisation has been a major plus, is it?
3: Well, we get the enumerators to summarise the results for their area and send them back to us ahead of the census forms themselves, and we key that up, we analyse it and we publish it.
0: I was just going to say, I mean... The twenty sixteen census would would you get that done faster, quicker, with more information than say the nineteen fifty six census or something? Oh, far quicker, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. we
3: started scanning it back in two thousand and two, so this is the fourth census we have scanned it, and we use OCR optical character recognition, so oh, the I computer see. does all the the work. Right. Yeah.
0: Okay. What for you is the is the key number that we see so far?
3: The population has increased by 170,000.
0: In in what period of time? Over the five years from 2011
3: to 2016. Natural increase, we can break that down into natural increase and migration. Natural increase is 200,000. So it gives us a figure of net migration of minus 30,000. But the important figure today is that we have about 85,000 more people in Ireland than the estimates would have indicated. Now, there's a few reasons for that. Some of that will be tourists who were here for the 1916 celebrations. We think maybe about 20,000 people. But within that, then, we're also possibly undercounting immigration by some amount and maybe overestimating immigration.
0: People leaving the country.
3: Yeah, we might be overestimating that slightly. Yeah, So we'll, we'll revise the population estimates once we get the definitive results next March.
0: Yeah. You didn't notice when you were doing the calculation I was away that night, did you? No?
3: Not personally, George, <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> All right. Um, the, the, the issue, though, of the population, what is the actual population now of the Republic?
3: Uh, 4.76 million.
0: Am I right in thinking... That at famine time, it might have been double six, that, wouldn't six, it?
3: Be? Uh, 6.2 uh, six back point in 1841, two. yeah. yeah okay. uh, so the low point was. Um, In 1926. And then, you know, it started to rise again after that and then it fell and we had another low point in 1963. And it's been generally increasing ever since. Although during periods of high emigration, like in the late 80s, we will see Ireland's population fall slightly. Our population is very susceptible to moves in migration. So when we get high inward migration, the population grows strongly like between the o two o six 6 census and even between 2006 and 2011, with 350 extra thousand people, this time only 170 extra right. thousand because we're going through a period of emigration.
0: Now, as somebody who would live through periods of emigration like the 50s and, and the 80s, particularly the 50s, when, it was, when I was one of them, as it were, there were also parts of Ireland which were like decimated. Leitrim being a good example of that, for instance, Has every county had an increase or are some still negative?
3: Uh, It's a very good question. So today's figures show us that the population of Fingal for example in Dublin has increased by 8% whereas uh, Donegal has lost population over the five years by 1.5%. Mayo and Sligo have also lost population. So three counties are shown a population fall and uh, a lot of other counties in the Midlands and along the western seaboard are shown very, very small increases in their population. And it's kind of a picture of east-west. When you look at the thematic map and the colours stand out you can see strong population growth along the eastern seaboard and also in the cities. So we're seeing strong population growth in Cork City, Galway City, Limerick City, Waterford City, faster than the surrounding counties. But it,
0: it, it, that's also not good, though. I mean that, as we approach better economics and and more in, inward investment and so on, with the same countries or sorry, the same counties are the ones that suffer. I mean, it's almost Cromwellian. You know, when you look at the west. Where you have, I think you said Donegal, Sligo, Mayo. I think where you have miners as the east coast, then has growth. Then you have the rural urban divide, and you don't really want that either. You want, I mean, don't you want some kind of balance? You don't want everybody heading off to the city.
3: I guess, you know, these have been extraordinary times for Ireland over the last five to seven years. And, you know, with very high unemployment, I guess it's natural you will see migration into the cities as people look for jobs. And presumably under regional development plans, the development, if you like, will be more managed over the next five to 10 years. And we will see, you know, more managed population growth across the country. But for sure, these census figures are showing us, you know, that over the past five years, a lot of the action has been on the East Coast and in the cities. Yeah.
0: Now, do you know uh, at this stage or indeed will you know eventually I- in terms of, of the percentage of the population that are migrants from abroad as opposed to native Irish?
3: We don't have that figure today. So no, but
0: you will have that, will you? We
3: certainly will next March. So we give ourselves six months to capture the data. We've already 10% of the forms scanned and captured. We'll have the full figures uh, available next March and that will give us the full breakdown by nationality, by age by um, migration, so the people who'd arrived in the year up to census day, um, by place of birth, by religion, okay. by disability. But well, the religion range of thing books.
0: is interesting. Do you remember you came in for a lot of stick by the people who said, I have no religion and there's nowhere to put my tick. What I sort of information will you give on religion?
3: Well, well, we'll basically, we'll report the results as we get them. But you're right. I mean, the question did come in for criticism, but it wasn't open to us to change it this time around. We ran a no change census. I think it attracted so much attention with, you know, coming on to talk to yourselves and to other people that um, more and more people will opt for the no religion option on the question. So the question is, what is your religion? And the first option is Catholic and the second is Church of Ireland and no yeah. religion then is down the bottom. But notwithstanding that, you know, I, I think the results will be interesting. We'll see how it's increased. It was 250,000 the last time. So we'll see how it's gone up this time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, the, the, what about Irish speakers now? This will be crucially important because the, the the census, the great thing about the census is that it underpins strategic planning by governments. Um, you don't know yet on Irish, do you?
3: I don't, uh, but I we do know that in 2011, I, I mean, about half of us indicate on the census form that we can speak Irish. Can you speak Irish, yes or no? And about half of us tend to say... Do we? Yes, yes. But it's quite a simple question. Can you speak Irish, yes or no? Yeah, we wouldn't that, like
0: test that now, you and I, like.
3: No, no. Right. <laughs> then we go on to ask, if so, how often do you speak it? And yeah. we get the number of daily speakers. So that's about 70,000 the last time round. But then when we look at the number of Irish census forms that we actually handed out back, in 2011. It was about 7,000. But that might be because the Irish on the census form is difficult. But anecdotally, from the ground this time round, there was a lot of demand for Irish forms. So that could be as a consequence of the whole increase in the Grailscullina and maybe parents wanting to fill out the Irish form with their children. So it will be interesting to see what the figures show us.
0: All right. the, um, What about Northern Ireland? Are there censuses, do their censuses take place in tandem with ours?
3: No, Northern Ireland are under the UK system, yeah. which is once every 10 years. So they didn't have a census this in 2016. Right. Their next census will be in 2021. Coming out of the 2011 census, they had a census and we had a census. And we did produce a report, uh, Census 2011 Ireland and Northern Ireland. And in that, we have all island maps. And so it shows the age distribution for the whole island. It shows... What's um, the,
0: what was the population for the whole island at that point?
3: I don't have it off the top right. of my okay. head. Okay. Yeah,
0: But it'd probably be... About Over five million. million I was close to six million almost yeah, yeah yeah. and
3: yeah. yeah. um, so it's just interesting they have an older population, you know, have they? they have a higher percentage of people with no religion, a higher percentage of people who indicate that they've poor health. So the report is on our website, it's very, very interesting reading, yeah.
0: Older and uh, and consequently, I mean, poor health and older. Are linked really, aren't they? If you have more old people, you have more people who are likely to take bad health.
3: Yeah, but the age doesn't explain at all. Does not? No, it doesn't. No, no. the The number with who indicates bad or very bad health in Northern Ireland is significantly higher than in uh, in Ireland. I, don't now, I appreciate
0: your statistician, but do you want to uh, render an opinion? Uh, um. I mean, it's not the uh, It's not the air. So we better find the better excuse.
3: Yeah, look at I don't know, the you know, it'd be up to the to the experts to kind of analyse yeah. that and understand it better. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um but you see, one of the reasons why you have more older people in Northern Ireland as a percentage, is a huge number of young people in Northern Ireland go to university in Britain. Whereas the vast proportion of young people in the Republic go to university in, in the republic.
3: That's possibly a reason, yeah.
0: Well, I yeah. mean, a lot of young people would leave Northern Ireland for Or, for instance, young people who would join the British Civil Service, they would be quite likely be posted in Britain. So you can see why there is a greater movement of young people, you know. Yeah,
3: yeah. I'm sure there's, there's a range of factors at play. I mean, we've got a higher birth rate in Ireland, you know.
0: Yeah. So when are you going to tease me again with some more information? <laughs> March, March
3: next year, George. Yeah. Yeah. But far more interesting stuff. Now I mean, you know to be
0: sorry, Georgia, I'll be at a different time of day in March now, don't forget. 12 to 2. Okay. So it'll be a lunchtime. A lunchtime gig. No problem. So I'll have a sandwich for you rather than a three course (laughs) dinner, which you're used to getting. (laughs) Just before you go, the great scourge of Ireland, uh, obviously, is emigration. That's our history from the famine. In essence, now, are we at a point where emigration, based on this sentence and the last one, is not actually an issue? Is it? Are we at that point, do you think?
3: I'm sure for the individual who has to emigrate it is an issue and emigration has been quite high in Ireland over the last five years you know over 80,000 people have emigrated every year
0: That's half a million That's Give or
3: take That's right yeah yeah. All young And another you know 300,000 have emigrated so 700,000 people have moved in and out of of Ireland over the last five years so I'm sure it's always an issue for the people who are affected by it so I wouldn't really like to kind of dismiss it you know and, you know, it makes managing the population and understanding the movements of the population around the country challenging as well. And the data is hugely important for policymakers and knowing where people are living, where the demand for housing is, etc.
0: I, I have to tell you, one of my one of my party tricks is remembering telephone numbers. Um, you make numbers talk and it was really great uh, having you. And I, I booked you in for March, OK?
3: It's a date. Thanks
0: very much. The Central Statistics Office says chief statistician, senior even, Deirdre Cullen. Well, uh, this is a first for the program. I've never actually done it because I'm talking to a body language expert, Judy James, who joins me on the telephone. Judy, welcome to the program.
4: Thank you. I'm yeah. pleased to be here, and it does work on radio. Don't
0: worry. <laughs> <laughs> this is great stuff now, and uh, we have to go for Theresa May uh, because, of course, Ken Clark said she was a bloody difficult woman. Now, can you? What can you tell us about her? Looking at her body language,
4: it was interesting because I was actually sitting um, on the news when when that Ken Clark film came up, and we had we actually realised that he didn't know he was being filmed, and he got that comment. And I think, in actual fact, calling her a difficult woman probably played in her favour, if anything, because Mm. you're looking at um, a set of leadership competences that will trigger what's called limbic thinking, which is where um, people, particularly under the kind of crisis that we've got going on over here, thanks to Brexit at the moment, they will be looking for certain boxes to be ticked in a leader, and I think she ticked most of them. Um, It wasn't a popularity contest, because I think people didn't want the slightly jovial joker like the Boris Johnson because things have got a little bit too serious for that Um, and we wanted somebody um, who would actually have quite a strong parental leadership presence so I think people were very much looking for somebody that would actually take the whole thing and go away with it and get rid of all our worries and make it all better and she did have that look about her, she looks experienced we've seen her there for years so it was a familiar face, she hasn't got that jokey Um, I'm trying to be liked by everybody, look, that is very important because as the decisions get more unpopular, it will be important that she's got resilience to that so she can be unpopular but also admired in her decisions. Um, And I, I think she just had that slightly troubled look, but she has got a good flashing smile every so often. But we've seen a lot of different facets of her over the years. When I don't know if you saw where she dealt with the police Federation famously and she was a very critical parent there, wagging finger um, raised eyebrows, so very pseudo-aggressive but she can also um, look very assuring, reassuring as well. And I okay. think
0: that, that now, my guest is body language expert Judy James. But Judy, round about the same time, of course, you had Blair uh, facing the Chilcot Report, and mm-hmm. he had that mammoth press conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did everything by discover Jesus, because <laughs> he, he cried. And he did How did you read his uh, his body language on the report? It was, was, was it believable? It was
4: no um it it was a two hour epic for me i mean i i've I've dissected this guy's body language for so many years, so I've seen all of the little routines that he gets up to i I described him as being a human emoji, which is where he went through every emotion in the book I think uh, I didn't believe any of them until he got to the end and I don't know how much he managed to watch of it, but first of all, we got the choking back slightly tearful. Um, which I've seen a lot of times before. I mean, that's quite a well-honed routine, but I think some people felt quite sorry for him at that point. But then he pulled apart every point that had been made in the Chilcot inquiry for the middle bit. So this is where the old Blair started to come back with all the gesticulation of the gated hands, and he was kind of rebooting his confidence and his status levels. But when we got to the end, all the humility went out of the window, and we got this very alpha male posturing, the chest came out again. Um, He started to punch his fingers down on the desk and that's where he was trying to sell himself as the guru. I've been in the Middle East, I understand it all. You need me to kind of advise the country now. So it went from this feigned, upset humility to this very... Arrogant version of Blair again at the end,
0: but you see, it must be. I, I, it must be also fantastic for somebody in your business to look at this American election, because yes. I mean, never before I would have thought if you had better people to look at.
4: I just, I, and I, it's so fascinating psychologically to understand things like how somebody like Trump will connect with vast swathes of people who probably logically would understand that he, you know he's probably even insulted some of them. I mean, he's been very sexist. You know, and they're probably people that are being swayed by emotion by what seems to be a, an incredible alpha male. And he really plays on that. He always uses his height. He stands head and shoulders above everybody. He's has his head up very arrogantly. Um, and he's got this idea that I'm being honest in what I say and I call it as it is. And uh, that can affect people psychologically. That level of odd charisma can be quite hypnotic. Yeah, As but a-
0: interestingly, Dan, the female equivalent of Tony Blair is Hillary Clinton. I mean, you don't believe Hillary, do you?
4: Well, Hillary, uh, in a way, I mean, again, I've I've studied the Clintons for so many years, and I think she's had to reinvent herself because we saw her at this very fawning, adoring. You know, partner to Bill, nodding and smiling at him throughout all sorts of (laughs) scandals, and now suddenly she's she's having to develop a new image as an independent woman in her own right who can lead a country. She's kind of developed the body language. You know, the terracotta army. She's she's kind of developed that arm straight down by her sides, very bolt upright, uh, never carrying a bag, doesn't use a lot of gesticulation, um, just turns her head while she's lecturing. It's quite powerful. Um, but I will be absolutely fascinated to see what happens when she's up there doing a debate with Trump, as seems very likely, because that's where um, people again that limbic thinking will be prompted and people will go with their feelings regardless of,
0: Now, it's a really interesting thing what you said there for a man, right, because a man like me won't understand it. But for instance, you you pointedly say never carries a bag. I always got the impression that that Margaret Thatcher carried a bag like a Kalashnikov, you know. (laughs) Um, How important is this bag thing for women?
4: You know, we are in a whole new era now. And I think, you know, back in the day when Margaret Thatcher... Margaret developed two devices. One was a very, very quick pottering walk that made her look as though she was thinking and moving more quickly than anybody else. But as you say, that huge handbag, that it looked more like a weapon than anything else. Nowadays, I think it's very important that the women don't carry a handbag. And I noticed that Theresa May lost hers overnight. She went into number 10, the last cabinet meeting, carrying what looked like a goodie bag from a party. And um, the next day it had gone. It tends to look like a, a negatively feminine device now, um, and women look a lot stronger and a lot more confident without carrying the bag. It, it just doesn't work anymore.
0: Now, there was a moment just recently, and I know you looked at it, this is where Bernie Sanders was actually endorsing Hillary. Um, did you see anything there?
4: It's Well, I mean, clearly you knew that he was chewing back emotion at that point. And I think, in a way, he was leaking a little bit. I think he was—he was doing what he thought he needed to do. Um, it was a little bit like when I remember Hillary uh, Clinton endorsing Barack Obama, and those two had had so many body language tussles between them. He used to use his height and lean over her um, and pat her on the arm. He'd do the power patting that made her look like a, a like a sort of—he got a crinkly-eyed smile as though she was some elderly auntie or something. And I think there as well, we. We did get the endorsement, but I wouldn't say in the body language that it was a 100% endorsement. It was just to be seen to be doing the right thing and maybe looking for a job in the White House in future.
0: Now, finally, um, what do you think of Cameron's farewell uh, at, at, would like with the family outside Number 10 and so on?
4: It, this always happens because it doesn't matter what you think of them as a prime minister. And I remember with Gordon Brown, I mean, I was no huge fan, but when he walked off with his little kids toddling beside him, it's always a bit of a choker, really. And I think, especially um, because we had Cameron choking slightly when he made his res- resignation speech, the next time he came out, did you did you hear that humming that he did when he walked away, which was hilarious? He walked back into number 10 humming loudly. So he's clearly trying to adopt an air of nonchalance. I think he made a good speech, but his his children were so... Adorable, um, and their body language is so adorable. And when they stood and hugged on the doorstep, I I think you had to be quite a brute to not choke up and just have a little tear at that point. It was it was quite moving.
0: Oh, I uh, actually, I envy you. If I retire from this job, I'm going to take get some training from you. I enjoyed it. <laughs> we'll have you back on again. I'll send you pictures of a few people I want you to look at over here. I'll send Anytime. you a few videos. <laughs> uh, my producer has just said in my ear that you would have a field day looking at videos of me.
4: Oh, well, please send them over. <laughs> I will happily. <laughs> you might not speak to me afterwards because I I'm a bit of a Trump. I tend to be honest, I'm afraid. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Judy, thank you so much.
4: Pleasure. Thank you.
0: Body language expert, Judy James.